One of the biggest aha moments of my career was discovering that I wasn't actually in the food and beverage industry. I was in the inventory management business. And the easiest way to make more money wasn't one-off events or nightly specials. It was optimizing my seating inventory on peak. More butts in seats is more money today. And here's how you get it. Yelp for Restaurants guest manager waitlist functionality empowers your guests to add themselves to your digital waitlist before they even leave their house. It provides accurate wait times and automatically notifies diners right before their table is ready. This dramatically reduces turn times, enabling you to handle more volume. Learn more about how this powerful tool can optimize your seating inventory today at restaurants.yelp.com. Now here we go. I fancy myself as an ethical, honest, good employer, but I've seen some of the cases that he works on and there are some definitely unethical, dishonest, and terrible employers, right? So there are employees that need protection. They do need advocates. If I ever switch back into the law, that's probably the place that I would focus at because I don't think it's a hard thing to be a good employer. I honestly don't. Just you got to do right by people. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Before Cyrus Batchin became a bar owner and a Michelin-rated restaurateur, he was a lawyer. And that's what drew me to this conversation. How many nights have we laid awake wondering if tomorrow was going to be the day that we were going to get sued? For what? Who knows? By who? No idea. But my assumption was that a lawyer would have a completely different perspective on how to operate within our industry, and I wasn't wrong. Today we chat with Cyrus about the things to do and the things we should avoid in an effort to become a better restaurateur. Growing up in a restaurant family, so restaurants came first. So my parents had restaurants. My mom is a first-generation immigrant. My dad's actually uh, from Texas, right on the Louisiana border of Orange. He's from Orange, last city in Texas before you hit Lake Charles, Louisiana. So food was big in our family. When my mom moved here, they moved here. She immigrated from Iran. And initially, she went into cosmetology and then got pulled into restaurants. I feel like a lot of first-generation families do. My dad was an engineer working for Western Union, doing all their telecommunications. And over the course of my life, it was a series of everything from a diner to a Mexican restaurant to pizza place to rotisserie chicken. And my entire life was working in these restaurants. So I worked in restaurants, my family's restaurants specifically, all the way up until... I want to say my last year of undergrad. And then when I moved on to graduate school, then that was like a full-time focus. A full-time focus on Um, law? School, going to school. So in law school, that lasted all of a year. And after my first year of law school, I met up with a bunch of friends who had just graduated and they were like, yeah, you got through the first year, hardest year ever. Being a lawyer sucks. (laughs) 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 But they said, look, we went through it. We did it finished the degree, you're already halfway through. And I had been successful at the end of my first year in an oral argument competition. Um, Typically, your first year of law school, you do like a summer internship or a summer abroad. One of the judges in that competition that I won 
basically said, look, I would love for you to come work for me as a paid intern out of your first year of law school. These offers don't happen. I accepted. I went, started working, you know, right away. I'm going in and I hated it. Kind of exactly what all my friends said. It was a big defense litigation firm. So it's just paperwork on paperwork on paperwork, hours and hours and hours, things that I was not excited to do. And as I was walking on my lunch break one day, they were just opening the W Hotel in San Diego. So this is 2002 going to 2003. They had a job posting on the wall. I was already in school part-time now because I was working this job. And I went in and just applied. Started out as a concierge, then ended up to being like the director of bars and nightlife for the hotel, all while I was in law school. So very quickly thereafter, just kept getting pulled into F&B, hospitality. My last year of law school, I was actually in the process of opening a nightclub in San Diego. So that opened in 2007, going to 2008. Terrible time to do a business, as we all know, financial crisis. But my parents call me. I'm supposed to be studying for the bar. And here I am opening this 20,000 square foot nightclub with a bunch of investors. And they're just like, what are you doing? Well, why are you doing this to yourself? And I looked at both of them and I said, look, maybe if you were doctors or lawyers, I'd be a doctor or lawyer too. I spent my entire life growing up in hospitality. Like This is just kind of second nature to me. Now, when you looked at your parents' careers, I'm sure that they were very much working in the business, probably a little less on the business. I can't imagine you envisioned the same life for yourself. I would assume that you had a strategy to get out, to get above it, right? No, absolutely. So, you know, my dad was, he's electrical engineer, so very technical and always looking how to systematize and improve things. My mom was just brass tacks, just get in there, roll up your sleeves and do it. When I worked for the W, which was Starwood at the time, I felt like there's some really good things you can learn in the mom and pop space, just good hospitality, good customer service. There are some very important structures that you learn in the corporate space. And so when I looked at it, you know, even now my mom tells me sometimes pre-pandemic, you know, there are times where I didn't go to the office, didn't set foot on site for two months. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, you know, I have systems in place. I trust people. And I, I look at the metrics of the business. I can know what's going on. I check the cameras. I look at the POS. I'm good, right? I have third-party inventory companies. I'm good. I don't have to be here. That coming post-pandemic has, you're sucked back in because it's like starting all over again, right? So it's back to day one where the first business that I opened in LA a bar called Lock and Key, which is still around. We just yep. had our 10-year anniversary. We've experienced year-over-year -year growth for 10 years. But the first two years, I was in that business every day, all day, just learning it, growing it, because it's you know it wasn't a franchise. It was a new baby. I had to figure it out. Year eight through now, I didn't have to really be there. You know, I would check in and drive by, but I didn't have to be there. So I'm sure everybody's wondering who's listening, like, what are those systems, bro? I got to get me some of those. I mean, no one can see you but me. And the look on your face is just calm. You look like a peaceful individual. This is not the face I look into in most of these conversations, regardless of level of success. But you seem very settled. So I would love to know what these systems look like. So I think the first system to put in place is to build a culture of respect, you know, kind of create a family environment. And that's the mom and pop side, right? You know what's going on with your employees. You're invested with your employees. Not always easy to do and definitely you know, easier said than done. But I've been, knock on wood, lucky to have the team buy into that. Second, I think for bars specifically, when it's beverage, 
getting third-party inventory companies involved, you know, real-time POS polling, tons of cameras. And then my weekly kind of rundown is I'm looking at every single invoice every Monday. It comes across my desk and I'm just checking. What was the business doing? What are we ordering? Why are we doing this? And I'm still CC'd on every email when it comes to ordering, just so I can, they know that I'm looking. I'll chime in from time to time. Hey, I don't think we need that. I was there the other day. I saw it on the shelf type thing. But the most important thing I think is the people, honestly, having the right people and the right team and the right culture. Well, and I think that generally most people say, oh, I struggle to find good help and all of that. But it's far worse in Los Angeles than it is anywhere else because everybody is literally one decent audition away from telling you to go screw yourself. This is true. Um, it is. I mean, it, there's no more transitional state than being young in Los Angeles. And I think that that represents most of the folks that end up working with us. I developed my own strategies to create buy-in with those folks, but I'm curious to know, how do you create that level of investment in them when they're so invested in their career outside of your locations? It's, I think, the idea of loyalty, right? So I'm loyal to them, you know, be loyal to me. So we have a live music night. If I have a bartender who's also has a band or performer, hey, come in and play. I'll give you the same money that I was giving the band. You have a home here. You know, employees that if you're connected with and you know they're going through a difficult time, regardless of business owners are always the last to get paid and employees are never really invested in your problems. But an employer should always be invested in the problem of their employees because those are the front line for your business. So if I know employees struggling or having a hard time or they're trying to get their ends to meet and maybe they lost their other second job, making sure that my ear is there, okay, extra hours or I'll give you a little advance. Pay it out, not expecting to see it returned. Sure. I've been blessed to be able to have a business that's allowed me to do that. And I realized working for a mom and pop, you know, one of my mom's restaurants, I remember the best day is like a thousand bucks. And now when I think about it, how are you making this work? I know how we're making it work is because the entire family there is working, right? So it's the idea that you said earlier. It's like, I think first generation families in this business and a lot of people that go into it give themselves a job. Mm -hmm. I've always looked at it as creating an investment, right? I want to create passive income. But I think it really is just that connection with the employees that allows you to get there. Outside of that, you have to have the means in the business because if financially I couldn't give somebody an extra shift or I couldn't support you know, them and the time they needed it, then maybe they're not going to be, be as loyal. So I think I've been very blessed and fortunate to be able to do that. As you ventured into other tiers of dining, how did you evolve from an entrepreneurial perspective to be able to meet the demands of these new tiers? I think I like to challenge myself, but the fundamentals I think are the same, right? The ideas of hospitality, culture, trying to systematize things, which definitely becomes a lot harder when you're dealing with fine dining and a hundred different vendors and 20 different ingredients. And, oh, I got this at the farmer's market. And you're like, hey, I'm trying to figure out food costs, guy. It's just being prepared mentally to do that. For me, pre-pandemic wasn't as difficult as it is now. And I'm really proud of the team that we assembled now for Camphor and what we were able to achieve in less than a year. But it's been taxing for sure. It's taxing, right? The employee turnover, not from a perspective of people don't want to work for you, but just that they're, well, I can make five more bucks here, so I'm going to go here. I can make eight more bucks there, so I'm going to go here, right? So the turnover now, specifically in back of the house, is a lot significantly higher. 
Oh, I mean, you'll lose a five-year-old employee for a six-hour shift that you're unable to give. Talk to me about margins. <sighs> oh, I know. Late, yeah. Margins, <laughs> honestly, for us on food and beverage, we run it pretty tight. Labor is what's killing sure. everybody now. Especially in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Labor numbers. So I give people this example always. I said, look, lock and key opened in 2013. Minimum wage was eight bucks an hour. A well cocktail, and I didn't pour a bad well, but we're in Koreatown. So a well was eight bucks. A cocktail was 12 to 16. Fast forward 10 years. Minimum wage is 16.04. Can I charge you $16 for, in Koreatown, for a Evan Williams old fashioned? I don't think so. So that is the compression that is affecting, I think, margins. But labor has been the biggest, I think, pressure. And people's priorities shifted post-pandemic, right? The idea of like value of your time and what you want to do and what you want to pursue. And I'm a big advocate for that. But I also scratch my head sometimes and wonder where the people went. Yeah. We would put out a job posting. I would get 100 applicants. Now we put out a job posting. It's like trickling, trickles in. Here and there. Oh, yeah. I mean, just in the span of less than a decade, especially in Los Angeles, I saw the labor market change in a significant way. Does it affect the way you imagine your locations operating or at the very least hours of operation? So lock and key, it did not. Like I kept most of my employees and most of my employees returned post pandemic. Cam4 space was dark. And then that was like a new reconceptualization of the space. So we had to do a total rehire. We launched that restaurant, I would say with, in all honesty, we're, we're just at our year anniversary, two executive, two co-executive chefs, a sous chef, and maybe one other person on the back of the house that actually had proper culinary training and experience. The rest of the 16 or 17, 18 person team we literally had people coming in saying, hey, I learned how to cook pastry during the pandemic. I would love to be your pastry chef. And we're like, cool, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want to make, just put it yeah. on the menu. Well, which would then require the, the, co- the executive chefs to really, sure. they're working like, I mean, these guys, God bless them. They're working, you know, 20, 30, 40 hours, like back to back to back to back just to really get there. And somehow we made it work and we're still making it work. But I do feel bad for the back of house team and the team as a whole because I try to create that work life balance. But in this market, when people just call you the next day and say, Hey, I'm out of here, you've got to plug it in. Usually it's plugging it in with somebody who's there. As far as like changing the menu and things like that, you know, we've talked about it with Camphor. There are certain things that were like, Do we take this off the menu? And then we're so very fortunate to have this, you know, Michelin accolade and we're like, Can't change the menu now. <laughs> <laughs> because these are the things that got us here, right? If we really, quote unquote, dumb it down, are we still performing at the same level, regardless of if the ingredients are the same? But if we're not use, employing the same technique, now are we sabotaging ourselves? So that's been a challenge as of late. Just Does really, it affect the way you think about hours of operation? So started, the chefs wanted, their vision for Camphor was this Balthazar seven-day-a-week bistro that's just going. And it's just always a vibe and it's always going. And I sat there as the 
restaurateur looked at them and said, yeah, I don't think so, guys. Like lock and key had already opened. I was like, do you really want to work seven days a week? I don't know that that's the right thing to do. They agreed to six days. And so we started off six days within five months or like, can, five can, sound five, good. Can, can we get five? And I was like, <laughs> not going to say it, but I told you so. <laughs> right. And you can make money in five days though, which is shocking because that's for two relatively old guys that have been doing this a long time. I mean, when you're running seven days, you can't imagine making money at five days. And then you're at five days and you're like, this feels good. pretty damn good. You, so that was lock and key. Pre-pandemic lock and key was six days as well. Every restaurant that I had was dark on either Monday or Tuesday or restaurant or bar. And then we came out the gate at four days and it's been fantastic. And now we're thinking, okay, we'll buff in the fifth day, but I'll never go back to six or seven, right? Those are days I keep for special events. If somebody wants a book, hey, you have an off day, you want a party, give you a great deal. Those are the, I guess, tricks of the trade. But yeah, five days is is where it's at for us. I think for sure for camp or for the long time coming. Let's talk about those hard conversations. So that was always the struggle for me as a restaurateur that doesn't cook. It's difficult to have culinary conversations with somebody that specializes in culinary. It's hard to talk about math and numbers and spreadsheets with people that just don't care. They're concerned about the quality of the food. And ultimately, regardless of what the numbers say for a restaurant, like a Michelin accolade is determined by the quality of the food, the quality of the preparation and the consistency of the presentation. And so it's very hard to be excellent at those things and worry about cost cutting measures and did this get done? And did you fill out your waste log? And maybe we should put a burger on the menu and all of these things. Because I think that people that are passionate about people become restaurateurs and that people that are passionate about food become chefs and maybe foodies. So how do you reconcile the two? How do you create that environment where you're free to speak your mind about someone else's calling? So again, we call it blessed or lucky or chose the right team to put in place. We have a somewhat of a symbiotic relationship. One of the co-chefs, Max, he has his own business, so he's attuned to the ideas of numbers and things like that. The other uh, co-executive chef, Lijo, he is a guy who definitely has his, think through his years at Ducasse, they are looking, he does understand and looks at costs. So I've been lucky to have partners that get it, but you still have those conversations, right? Where it's like, I've always told chefs and creatives that I work with, whether it's an architect, an interior designer, or a chef, you're an artist, I want you to paint, and then I will come in behind you and basically I'm the builder. I'll tell you what's feasible and not feasible, but I don't want to constrict your creative license. I want you to go like where you want to go, and then we'll have a conversation about whether this works. So I think it's having that symbiotic relationship and working with people that you have a mutual trust, right? I trust Lijo and Max's palettes. Things go on the menu. I've never tasted it. I'd be comfortable sending somebody to the restaurant and saying that's good. They've been fortunate enough to trust myself and my partner that when we kind of push them in a certain direction, that it is for the bigger and better interest. You know, now we're having conversations with DoorDash and Caviar about exclusively carrying the burger as a to-go item from a Michelin, you know, starred restaurant. This burger can be to-go. And they're kind of taken back. We were talking about it yesterday. It's like, wow, this thing has taken a life of its own, but it's really good. And it still meets all their 
standards that they've set for themselves. It just happens that the vehicle just happens to be a burger. So definitely not easy if you don't have the buy-in, I think, from your chef or your creative. And also, I think the other side is always understanding that chefs are artists, right? And as you said earlier, most artists aren't going to get it. So how do you frame the conversation in a way to help them get it? But it should always be a conversation, right? You know, if I was like, hey, I'm gonna, my parents used to own a Wampoyo rotisserie chicken place. It was a franchise. There was no discussion. The guy would come in and say, this is how you do it. This is what it is. Done. Like, I don't care. You make chicken every time a day. You shred it to do this. That's what it is. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You know, if I come in and I see the chicken that's been here more than this time and it wasn't broken down for a rice dish, I'm going to throw it away. That's a different model than what we're doing. Fine dining is artistry. So you've got to be comfortable sometimes working with them and having those conversations and respecting their boundaries where it's like, hey, fine, you could do these 10 things. Just give me this one. And it's our job as restaurateurs to figure out if that works or not. It does come down to numbers. One of the things that I really struggled with, especially once I was in all three tiers of dining simultaneously, is not appreciating my individual children for who and what they are. And I would begin to infuse things that I liked about one into the other. And it doesn't make it better. It just waters down this concept. I was able to look at 504, which was this like dirty dive bar in Hollywood. Like, you know, we really need to elevate the beverage program there. That's really going to change things. And it doesn't. It just adds cost. And nobody gives a shit because that's not why they go there. How have you managed to separate all of these locations from each other, implementing the things that actually move the needle and improve things and avoiding just changing to change? So Lock and Key, for example, we started the initial concept for the restaurant. We have a takeout window. Initial concept for food there was food stall out of Asia. We called it stall 239. It had a separate identity, has a lock-up window, food is served inside. You know, we had charcuterie and chicken sandwiches and all the things. And it's you're never making money off that stuff, right? Right. People come in, they want a cocktail, maybe they'll have a slider. And I constantly change it and change it and change it. Right before the pandemic, I just made the hard decision. My parents owned a pizza place at one time. I was like, screw this. I'm going 100% pizza, chicken wing, fries. That's it. Done. Like, pizza cost is amazing. We cut our own fries. We're not buying frozen. Still, cost is amazing. Chicken wings, probably the most expensive thing that I buy. That's the menu. That's it. But we'll make really good pizza. We'll make really good Kennebec fries and we'll have really flavorful wings. But it's a three item menu. I'm done. You know, we had a ribeye on the menu at one time. I was like, I'm done cutting it. This is what it is. So I think it's just being connected to the business and being aware that sometimes you have to walk away from things that, like you said, aren't really going to make you money. And as far as separating, now when I look at it, you know, I have some crossover employees that work at Camfor and work at Lock and Key, some guys that do prep in the kitchen that come over and they're wanting to implement certain things. And I'm just saying, listen, if you want to try it at a special, <laughs> sure. But I'm telling you right now, it's not going to work. I'll let you try. But if you can sell a thousand of these in the course of a month, we'll add it to the menu. If not, done deal. Right? I'm not going to reinvest and, and reinvent. And you have to trust me as somebody who's been behind this business for 10 years that I know what the customer wants and I know what's going on. But I don't like turning away the good idea. So I'll let them try. But I do put up hard barriers or give straightforward advice of, I don't think this is going to work. But yeah, they're totally different beasts. 
totally different beast. One of my underlying fears for my entire time as a bar owner or restaurateur in Los Angeles, or even as an operator for nightclubs before that, I would lay awake at night and wonder who's going to sue me and for what? Is it going to be a slip and fall? Did I not put a permit up in the right window? Is it going to be one of the employees? Is one of the managers going to do something idiotic? One of the biggest issues is visibility that you just don't know what you don't know. And I'm not an attorney. You hire attorneys, but then you also don't have 100% visibility into everything that's going on in all of your different businesses all at the same time. I can't imagine you lay awake at night and wonder about that. I would imagine that having a background in law that you've done as much as you possibly can to limit or mitigate your liability. If you have, what have you done? So absolutely, obviously, have a good relationship with your insurance broker. <laughs> I, I would say the number one, and it sucks because most people can't, most insurance workers don't even do this. The number one thing you should read on an insurance policy is not your coverage limit. It should be your exclusions. What are you not covered for? Get to know that to make sure you're actually covered. I think a lot of people saw this during the pandemic with the viral antigen or whatever clause that nobody could get paid from their insurance and they're forced to shut down. So I think that's number one. Number two, you can never have too much insurance. <laughs> so over-insure where you can, and it sucks because you pay for it. And then have for a bar, have your systems in place, have your security cameras. If you have in-house security, make sure they're properly trained. If you don't have in-house security, make sure it's a third party that has not only added you as an additional insured, but they need to show you the writer, which is something I've learned too through other litigation. They can send you proof of insurance, but if they don't actually send you a writer that says you have been added to the policy, it's not enforceable. And some attorneys play at that, some attorneys don't. So there's all these little loopholes to look out for that I've looked at. Latest one we just got hit with at CAM4 was an accessibility to our website, mm -hmm. right? Didn't know that That's was a thing. all over LA, man. Yeah, these are high frequency, like highly litigious. These are the things that give attorneys a bad name. I'm on the fence of fighting this one because the example that happened with us is we have a PDF of our menu that we show for events. It was never supposed to be forward facing. It accidentally made like the link wasn't password protected. This high frequency litigant goes on, sees it, get hit with this lawsuit. We had taken it down before we even knew about the lawsuit. And then when we hear the lawsuit, you know, we had the whole accessibility, like, look at our website. I said, everything's cool. Yes, everything's cool. And so it's those pressures and you know, things that restaurant owners have to deal with that frankly suck because you're right. Every morning you wake up at any given time, who's going to sue me, right? What had happened? Did my bouncer throw somebody out a little bit too hard last night? Or did somebody come in and just pretend like they're drunk to just get ejected to then sue, right? There are definitely high frequency plaintiffs out there, but those are the big things. And tip on the accessibility or ADA website, your general liability policy does not cover that. What covers that is EPLI policy, mm -hmm. which I just learned, right? Another insurance you got to pay for. <laughs> but it's really that. At the end of the day, you can't, as an attorney, I always say this, you can't stop somebody from suing you. You can just be prepared, right? So I think being a member of like the CRA, right? Having access to the legal help hotline because most mom and pops are going to freak out. They can't find an attorney. And then talking amongst your peer group or having these kinds of conversations where maybe somebody heard something and they're like, okay, I'm going to go look at that or do it. So I think shining light on 
where we are exposed as an industry is very important. And then finding the ways to support each other to push legislation, change things. Because I think that's something that I've heard is coming down with the website accessibility stuff. It's not actually a store. And most people are saying it's because of the menu. But what happens if somebody comes in, you just have to be prepared to read the menu off, right? You don't have to provide right. you know, a menu that's accessible, but you have to be prepared to service that guest. So the flip side of it is it cuts both ways, right? As a, you know, my cousin does employment law. I fancy myself as a ethical, honest, good employer, but I've seen some of the cases that he works on and there are some definitely unethical, dishonest and terrible employers, right? So there are employees that need protection. They do need advocates. If I ever switch back into the law, that's probably the place that I would focus at because I don't think it's a hard thing to be a good employer. I honestly don't. Just, you got to do right by people. And if you're not making money and you're trying to like not pay your employees, then maybe you got to shut your business down, <laughs> right? It's just like, that's what it is. And that sucks, but don't bring somebody to work and then not pay them. So I think it cuts both ways. You've got more than 15 years experience and across multiple tiers of dining. And what I was always looking for was this common thread, right? Like what's the proven formula for success in our industry? What works again and again and again? I don't know anyone that has that formula well mapped out, but there are certainly essential elements that I think many of us have discovered over time. For you, what are those essential elements that create a successful brand? I think for me personally, it's grit, right? You've got to be prepared to keep going. That's just like the driving force. When it comes to just kind of creating a successful brand in and of itself, I think it's being connected to who your patron or target audience is and being prepared to adapt and service those needs, right? It's the idea of you're always trying to fill some void or fill a gap. I'm sure when you opened 504, you were identifying a hole in the market and you were trying to fill it as best as possible. Lock and key was the same thing. Camphor was the same thing, just in a different way. So having that grit, identifying what the need is, and being prepared to invest the time, energy, whether it's through yourself or through a team. You know, There's some restaurateurs out there that are fortunate enough to have access to VC dollars or get crazy hotel deals where it's like, ah, blank check, do what you got to do. That takes off so much pressure that you're able to execute. And then there are the bootstrappers who are like, we're just going to figure it out and we get lucky, we make money, we put it to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. But connecting to your customer and fulfilling that need are the most important. And probably, honestly, the most important thing is if you're going to go into this industry, it's hospitality. Make sure you're giving hospitality, right? When you're doing food and beverage and service, hospitality, hospitality, hospitality is number one, which is what we've pushed really hard at CAM for, or pushed it at Lock and Key. I push it in my businesses overseas, giving the customer a good experience because they can spend their money anyway. What is that guest experience? What is that connection? What is that wow moment? How are you going to make sure that they feel comforted and want to come back and support you? The restaurant industry is filled with these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. And coming up in the industry, you're exposed to these as soon as you hop in. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables and create a better future for all of us? I think, and it's such a broad conversation, right? Industry as a whole, better for all of us. I think we have to figure out ways of providing support for a lot of restaurateurs that are going on these endeavors because 
there are all these pitfalls that we shouldn't be falling into individually, right? If I could tell you, hey, when you go down here, you make a left, avoid that bridge, it's out, make a right, you're good. You know, I think that sort of like community amongst ourselves and having the ear to the ground for each other is very important. We talked about it one time with, I was in a group of restaurateurs and I just told them, I said, look, you guys are all in a strip mall. Why don't you guys just all start buying all your products from through US Foods? Just have it all dumped in one door. You come and get it. You can negotiate pricing. You can do case breaks. You can do things like that. And the guys are like, huh, I didn't think about that. It's like, you're not competing. Now you're helping each other. So I think that's really important. Figuring out how we are managing all of these external costs and pressures that come into the business, I think that's a conversation that can hopefully make it better for each and every one of us. You know, when I used to walk into Restaurant Depot because I wasn't buying things at U.S. Foods because I was just trying to save that 10%, just seeing how many people are in there and what's going on, it's crazy. This is one of the engines that actually drives this economy that a lot of people don't realize. So I think it's just really figuring out mechanisms of support, whether that's regulation or deregulation or whatever it is. There's some tools that I think city governments can do to take the load off, make it a little easier. Because as I said, restaurateurs were in the hospitality business. We just want to serve people. We want to do good work. We want to welcome customers through the door. We don't want to have the LA public work saying, come in, oh, but did you pay this fee that you didn't know about? Now it's $195, but now it's 3000 because you didn't remember to pay that that one year. You're like, what? <laughs> so, you know, I think it starts at the local level first and foremost. And then after that, it's going to go to the national level, but local level and having guests who are aware of everything that we deal with, right? Having a platform that, you know, something that you're providing that we can share the trials and tribulations that we go through. I once bought, I bought the domain, I think like Restaurant Tours Anonymous because it's similar. <laughs> <laughs> you got to think about it. It's very similar. It's that addiction, right? Like, what are you doing to yourself today? Like, why are you doing this to yourself? And it shouldn't feel like that, right? We have to figure out a way to where it doesn't feel like that, to where it actually feels like when you have that moment and you connect with a customer and it's a great time or somebody, you know, I tell people at Lock and Key, we've had baby showers there, birthdays there. We have anniversary photos. We have like wedding photos. It's like we're creating experiences and memories for people. So we should have that good feeling every day about what we're doing. But sometimes it doesn't feel that good. You wake up sometimes you're like, shit, what did I do today? Why am I doing this? So I think figuring out how to get us out of that, you know, RA mindset. That's Cyrus Batchin. For more on his latest project, visit camfor.la. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.